Charlotte, Lydia, Riley, it is brilliant to have you on 20 Questions with. I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book, Imperial Island, A History of Empire in Modern Britain, because who could fail to be interested in not just the empire itself, but as you focus on in the book, the impact of the empire that still remains with us today, the aftershocks, the way it has played out, the effect it has had on people's lives, the effect it's had on people who were returning from the empire, the effect it's had on people who have immigrated to Britain from the empire, and so much more besides where racism fits into our society and why that is in part a legacy of empire, and so on and so on and so on. There are so many different themes that we can touch on in these 20 questions. You're a lecturer of history at Southampton University, just to give you your context. And I'm going to start, if I may, by just asking you this. Why did you write the book? What was it that made you think that looking at empire in this interesting way, looking at the, as I said, the sort of aftershocks, the impact of empire after it had finished, Why did you decide to write the book? I think it felt like a very timely book when I originally pitched it. And then actually, it seems to have become more timely since that happened. Um, I sold the book at the end of 2019, uh, just before the pandemic. And initially, I was going to finish the book with Brexit. The, the, The sort of subtitle at that point was that, you know, the, the empire in Britain from the from the Second World War to Brexit. And then things just kept happening that still seem to echo this this kind of reverberation of imperial history. So things like the toppling of the Coulston statue, obviously the Windrush scandal, things like the the kind of controversy over the National Trust doing a report about slavery and empire. So the book kind of comes much more up to present day than I had fully intended. But I think that demonstrates that empire is it's something that people are really feel passionately about in Britain and in British history today at the moment. Um, and I finished my PhD 10 years ago and I, I did an aspect of imperial history as part of my my thesis. And I think at that moment, it felt a little like imperial history was sort of slightly unfashionable or it, it wasn't a topic that people were really kind of galvanised by. And it just feels now that it's something that everyone has an opinion. It's kind of across the political spectrum. It's become very, very kind of polarising. And I think a lot of things that are happening in British society and culture today, you know, as an imperial historian, I could look at them and I could think, well, I feel like this really has a strong imperial legacy. But there's certainly a kind of appetite, I think, for thinking about empire at the moment that I think needs historians to engage with, because otherwise the conversations we're having are perhaps not as historically informed as they could be. People are growing up in Britain today, people have grown up in Britain, whose parents, whose grandparents were born in the empire. Do you feel that that means that our understanding of the past is improved, is enriched, that we're able now as a society to look back through different eyes collectively? I think what your question really highlights is that empire is not something that happened a long time ago. We often, I think, think about imperialism as like a 19th century phenomenon. It's like pith helmets and gin and tonics and things like that. Um, but actually, this is like generationally very much within within kind of living memory. And actually, you know, Britain still has a, a very small collection of overseas territories around the world today. There are people living in places like the Pitcairn Islands, for example, who are still essentially part of the British Empire. So I think, yeah, absolutely. I think what's interesting about it is that everyone who is alive in Britain today has experienced a different moment of imperial history. People who who were born kind of around the Second World War, you know, have lived through some of the kind of high points of imperial mobilisation, but then you have people who've lived through decolonisation. You know, the Falklands War happened just before, a couple of years before I was born, but that for many people will be something that they remember as a particular moment. 
And then, as you say, the kind of experience of migrants to Britain uh, from the empire definitely, I think, sh- shapes our history and also means that we have to be thoughtful about how we talk about people's relationship to empire because there can be a tendency to talk about the British and then the empire being over there but obviously people there's lots of people living in Britain today who are British who also have heritage from the empire and it's not a kind of us and them that's very much part of our national story it's not just something that was happening somewhere else. And it means for example that when we look at a massive historical figure such as Winston Churchill that perhaps we now look at him not just as someone who played a very important part in the liberation of Europe and the defeat of Nazism but also as someone who of course was a colonial figure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know it it's obviously become quite controversial this idea that we want to reevaluate the role of people who were important politicians during the time of empire for example or that we want to reevaluate institutions or uh, organizations that had a kind of role in empire as well as other roles in in britain and i think yeah you you just need to kind of face this stuff you need to think about churchill as having been someone who was you know and actually at the time i think what's interesting is this isn't a hidden aspect of his political life right in the second world war he is making speeches about the empire pulling together at time of crisis he talks about how he didn't become prime minister during the second world war to oversee the dissolution of the of the empire it's one of the sticking points in his relationship with the united states and the sort of start of the special relationship empire is one of the kind of sticking points in that and his you know his personal history he was a war reporter during the Boer war he was he was like you know on the ground filing reports back to Britain from an imperial site of conflict. This isn't something at the time that people would have been shocked to discover about Churchill, right? This is a really important part of his legacy and his identity in the moment. So when we come along now and kind of point out like, well, no, Churchill had this imperial role, we're not actually really uncovering anything. We're sort of just shifting the focus back to to what it would have been more at the time in a way we're we're saying well it's not we can't just talk about the war here we have to think more broadly and when the queen died last year it also focused minds on the fact that she herself was a link to empire and you make the point in the book about that very very early speech she made from cape town Mm -hmm. absolutely and this speech which became I think it was the thing I saw most often quoted after she died, that this this speech that she gives where she talks about her sense of duty, her sense of duty to Britain and the empire. But she makes it from Cape Town. There's also part of the speech which wasn't frequently quoted where she talks about having kind of homes around the world, essentially, in empire. You know, there's all these places she knows that she's welcome because of the empire. And, yeah, she had a she's a point of continuity in British history, of course, for a long time. Um, and during her reign, decolonization happens. And her relationship to empire is very, you know, she's in the empire at the moment when her father dies, and she finds out she's going to become queen. There are key moments where she kind of visits colonies around the world. She, she's the most, of course, the most traveled monarch that Britain has ever had. And mo- a lot of that traveling is around the empire and Commonwealth. So her connection to empire, I think, is really, again, really interesting, but but really important to acknowledge. Could you explain to us British citizenship in the context of decolonisation? Who was entitled to it and when that began? I can try. It's very complicated, as these things always are. So the, the thing that people often talk about here is the 1948 British Nationality Act, which is passed at the end of the Second World War. And it 
essentially, actually, the 1948 Act, it, it does a couple of new things. So one thing it does is say that if women marry someone who's not British, they don't immediately lose their British citizenship, um, which obviously is quite important for the for the women that that affects. Um, but most of the stuff it does around citizenship, it's really just kind of codifying and writing down what was already the status quo, which is that anybody who lives, is born in a colony or um, a Commonwealth country, a dominion, um, somewhere like Australia or New Zealand, or a country which has become independent. So India, for example, which obviously became independent the year before this act was passed. All of those people and everybody from Britain is a citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies, a CUKC. And those people have the right to live and work in Britain or or in the empire um, without a visa, without any kind of, you know, there's no quotas. They they can travel to Britain if they have a passport and, and they can they can live and work here or, or anywhere else. And that's the status quo from 1948 until 1962. Um, and that's the period that sees the largest this kind of um, increase in migration, initially from the West Indies and then from other places as well, from India and Pakistan, from East and West Africa, from the Caribbean, from places like Hong Kong and Malta and things like that. From 1962, this kind of freedom of citizenship starts to be limited. Um, so 1962, 1968, 19, um, in the 1970s and then 1981. And 1981 is the moment where this connection is really broken completely. From 1981... There's no special citizenship which which you have if you're from a from an ex colony. So there's this sort of 14, 15 year moment when during which is also happening obviously during decolonization where people can come and work in and live in Britain. They don't need any special paperwork. They don't need any kind of special visa. And then those rights are kind of gradually eroded. What rights did people have before the empire started to dissolve? So let's just take the second half of the 19th century. Were people who were colonised by Britain allowed to come and live in this country? So they were, because the, obviously the 19, because the 1948 Act is just kind of putting down formally rights that have already existed. Of course, travel is very different in this period, not least because of the um, the resources needed to do it and because of the the speed and the difficulty of traveling. But, you know, the empire is enormous and and the sort of traveling is months, you know, in a steamship or something rather than anything like that. There is, of course, migration. There has been a there has been a population of people of color in Britain actually for longer than the empire existed. Um, and certainly throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century, there is migration from the empire to Britain. One group that's particularly migrating is students. There's a lot of student migration to Britain in the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And of course, that means it's a particular group. It's a group of very elite, almost exclusively men. Um, but people coming from India. So Gandhi, for example, uh, studied law at UCL in Britain, you know, long before he became an independence leader. Uh, you have um, students um, who form groups like the West African Students Union and things like this. So there are students in places like London and Edinburgh from the end of the 19th century, certainly. It's a really different context. I think it's quite difficult to talk about um, in the con like compared to the 20th century, because travel is just so different and kind of passports and the way that these things work is so different. But yeah, absolutely. People, people did and could come from Empire to Britain in that period. A myth has perhaps developed that Britain stood alone for a period during the Second World War. But as you point out in the book, not only did Britain not stand alone because it stood with its colonies, mm. but also I think you suggest that people or you say that people at the time acknowledged that we weren't standing alone. Give us a sense of the sacrifice of the people from the empire on behalf of the Allied war effort. Because there's a terrible irony in a sense that we were helped to defeat the evil of Nazism 
by people who had been subjugated by Britain. Absolutely. And in the colonies which then have independence movements after the war, that is often used in their independence kind of movements. They either say, you know, we were fighting to defeat exploitation and oppression, and we now need to fight to do that in our own places. Or they talk about, you know, well, we were supposedly fighting for these wonderful British liberal values, and those liberal values should now be applied to us, and we should be allowed to vote and have independence and and, and etc. So yeah, there is absolutely, in the Second World War, there is an acknowledgement that people stand with empire. Churchill is very keen on talking about the colonies when he's talking about the war effort. There's the very famous David Lowe cartoon, The Very Well Alone, the soldier shaking his fist at the skies on the white cliffs of Dover. And this is, you know, very emblematic now of what we think about. But, you know, a month later, Punch publishes a cartoon which punctures that where the two soldiers say, you know, one of them says, oh, we're very well alone. And the other says, oh, yes, all 500 million of us. There's a real acknowledgement that empire is kind of on the side of the British at this point. And the sacrifices that people from empire make are enormously wide ranging. So, for example, because Britain's supply lines are completely cut off with Europe and it's obviously difficult to trade more broadly, some of the Dominions in particular are really producing food to support the British. So New Zealand, for example, actually has rationing during the Second World War, partly at least to produce things like butter and meat for the British markets so that people in Britain can have this food. There is the Second World War is interesting for countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, because in the First World War, they had to go to war with Britain as part of their kind of relationship to Britain. But by the Second World War, they've become more independent and they declare war themselves. Um, it's a it's a sort of choice by their parliaments to make. And their, their declaration of war on Nazi Germany obviously comes with, they raise armies, they make a huge manpower contribution. Um, people from Canada, for example, um, are very heavily involved in the D-Day landings, um, and particularly the landings at Juneau Beach. There's an enormous Canadian contingent there. And then people from around the, the colonies are also hugely involved. So you have people working in the colonies. So, for example, men working as aeroplane fitters in the West Indies who are kind of on bases and things like this. You have people traveling to Britain to work. So um, an example, for example, foresters from the from Honduras are sent to the highlands of Scotland uh, to work in the to work in the timber industry because people have been conscripted and have left um, and they're sort of brought from this incredible, you can imagine the kind of what would happen if you'd lived in Honduras your whole life and then you're brought to the highlands of Scotland and just the kind of coping with the cold and, and this completely different kind of context is enormously difficult for them. Some of those people stay behind, um, marry local women and, and, and never leave Scotland again and kind of make homes there. And then you also have people kind of, there's a fight for people of colour to be allowed to join the British forces. So women, for example, from the West Indies in the Women's Voluntary Service, and they become a very important, they end up having their own kind of uh, group within that. Um, and then things like the King's African Rifles. So um, the fights against Germ Germany and Africa, for example, you have an enormous British, uh, you know, white British soldiers going to Africa to fight, but um, also being supported by forces from Africa as well. So it's a, hu it's a huge sacrifice. It's a huge amount of a huge contribution by the empire to the British war effort. Do you have a sense of how freely or otherwise that support was given? It's a good question because uh, some places have conscription, some places you don't really need to have conscription. If you're running a colonial state, there's a huge amount of control over people's lives anyway. It's interesting to read primary sources from the time because sometimes you get the sense 
in these sources, you know, that people are really motivated to fight against Nazism. Then they want to support the the sort of what they see as the mother country. They want to fight against this terrible scourge. You know, of course, like Nazism's people of color know that Nazism is not a good thing for them, right? They they, they want to fight against fascism because of its um, kind of pressure on the world stage, but also because this is a hugely racist ideology. Um, but you do also get the sense that people are being kind of forced into this and it, it's difficult to know at an individual level how much is happening but that the other thing to kind of point out I think is that British um, forces from around the colonies often experience a huge amount of racism within the British forces as well the British government is enormously uh, suspicious towards people of colour who want to carry arms for example they when the Americans come to Britain and they bring black GIs with them the British government supports segregation and that means that uh, British people of colour get caught up in this as well and, uh, uh, you know, have a colour bar imposed on them and things like this. So even if people are joining the war effort freely, they they are often still experiencing a huge amount of racism within the British forces as well as kind of within the bigger context of the war. We're speaking on Windrush Day. Just sum up for us the contribution of the Windrush generation. So I think this is a really interesting kind of question and framing because we often think about migration in this terms we often think about migration and I think this is a very you know very positive way to think about migration to think about the contribution that people made and of course you know Windrush uh the the Empire Windrush which arrived in, in Britain 75 years ago today brought with it a large number of mostly mostly men from the Caribbean who come to Britain and they work across hundreds of different industries they work rebuilding britain after the war but they work across things like the post office they work on the buses on the trains the nhs is set up obviously in the same year as windrush and you have enormous um throughout the 1950s and 60s an enormous number of west indian nurses for example come to britain and work in the nhs uh, the nhs is is run partly by nurses coming over from the commonwealth and working for it and you know there's People of the the loosely termed Windrush generation, migration in the 40s, 50s and 60s have obviously made an enormous contribution to British society, politics, culture. I think it's also important that we don't get too caught up in having to make that argument, though. I think we sometimes have to celebrate migrants as being, you know, the contribution that they've made to this country. And it's important to celebrate it. But I think it's also important to point out that like these people had the right to live here in the same way as white British people did. And, and, you know, we don't always have to frame their being here as, you know, allowed because they made such a wonderful contribution or, you know, uh, because they um, have sort of done so much for society that that's why they kind of get away with being here. They they had the right to be here, whatever their contribution was to society. That that That's important to point out, I think. I'm curious to know about the changing demographics of Britain, both before the dissolution of the empire and after and the impact, as you have studied it, on British society and attitudes. So I think, as I said, there's there's always been a population of people of colour in Britain. You know, the historian Mary Beard, for example, has has talked about how, you know, you can find black Roman soldiers in Britain, for example. It's undeniable that this population increased with empire and particularly after the Second World War, um, as much as anything because of the the relative ease of coming to Britain after the Second World War, the kind of infrastructure supporting that migration is really increased. Um, and there are jobs and there is an economy that needs workers at that point. You know, it is a, it's something that's kind of 
encouraging people to come to Britain with, of course, the kind of push factors from decolonization. So, for example, partition in uh, the Indian subcontinent, the huge violence between um, on the partition between India and Pakistan, which means that people often also come to Britain from those areas. The demographic change, it's it's interesting because actually when you read Home Office documents from the 40s and 50s, you realise that the Home Office is not totally clear how many people are coming to Britain or, or where they're settling. There's a moment in the 19, when 1953, 1955, 1957, they survey local police chiefs, kind of 40 police chiefs around the country, asking them, you know, how many people from the Commonwealth live where you you know, are working? Because they don't know genuinely. Um, they, they're unsure about this. This is in the context of a kind of rising anti-migrant feeling in the 1950s, and the Home Office is trying to kind of keep tabs on all these Commonwealth migrants. It's gradually increasing throughout the, from 1948 through to the late 1960s, and the high point of migration is just before the 1962 Act, so kind of 1961, 1962. So as an example, I think in 1957, I think there's over 100,000 people come to Britain that year, um, and the the largest group is people from the West Indies and then kind of people from other areas around the Commonwealth. And the other thing I think that probably is changing in this period is that there's always been, there are, there are places around the country which have always had quite a diverse population or have for a long time. So places like Cardiff, for example, has always had a very diverse population in the area of Tiger Bay um, with uh, sailors coming off boats and kind of settling in them. London has always been very diverse in particular spaces, the area around Canning Town, for example, I think what happens in the 40s, 50s, 60s is a kind of dispersal of these groups, um, much more than had been the case before. So places like Bradford, um, for example, and Leicester see a lot of migration from Asia, um, but also people going to kind of cities that hadn't previously necessarily had a big population of people of colour. And again, when I was reading the police surveys in the 1950s, you know, the police in places like Grimsby and Hull are talking about sort of getting people coming to live there from the Commonwealth and that not having really been the case before. So you have this kind of shift. One of the narratives, the pro-Brexit narratives put forward by some of those arguing for Brexit was the idea of the undercutting of wages by mm-hmm. people coming from the European Union. This was something that you talk about in the book that happened decades earlier that underpinned to an extent, at least, the anti-immigrant, sometimes racist sentiment amongst parts of the British population. Could you talk to us briefly about that? Yeah, it's definitely an old narrative. I mean, it goes back before my book as well. In the late 19th century, I think there's a lot of anxiety about um, there's Irish migrants, for example, are seen as people who work for cheap and work for bad, you know, work in bad conditions and work for very little money and this kind of thing. To some extent, the trade unions sort of slightly engineer this in the 1950s and 1960s because the the trade unions are, are not many trade unions in Britain anyway, very much see themselves as working to support the rights of white British male workers. So women have trouble in Britain getting trade unions to support them, and people of colour have trouble getting the trade unions to support them. And, and one kind of side effect of this is that if the trade unions aren't supporting people of colour, then that often means people of colour are being exploited by employers, but that often means they're being paid less and therefore might actually be more attractive workers. And so you, you end up with this yeah, really pervasive narrative that, you know, the reason that these people can get jobs is that they will work for less money. You also have formal or informal agreements in a lot of industries that if there are redundancies, for example, people of colour will lose their job first. Trade unions often often kind of come to these agreements with bosses that 
um, yeah, you know, you have to protect what they call the kind of white indigenous workforce and that these are the people who have the most, they have the most kind of political power within the workforce at that moment. So it's definitely a narrative. And, and with the narrative around jobs comes a, a broader narrative around competition for resources. So there's a lot, there's a lot of anger in the 1950s that people of colour, migrants from the Commonwealth are getting houses, for example. And there's a lot of suspicion that they're kind of immediately getting council houses as soon as they come to Britain. There's a lot of anger that they're taking places in schools or that they're using hospital resources. So all of this stuff kind of fits together into a, a sort of dialogue that focuses on a kind of competition for the welfare state in a way. And can you draw a link between empire and, say, the race riots of Notting Hill or trouble in Liverpool? I think completely. So I think partly um, So there's you have kind of riots in Liverpool in 1948, uh, the race riots in, 19, in Notting Hill in 1958, the uh, race riots in Britain throughout the 50s and 60s. Um, I think this is completely rooted in empire, not just because these migrant communities themselves come from empire. And that's that's you know largely the reason for their presence in Britain. But also because empire, what empire does to the British is it does lots of things to Britain's attitude and understanding about race relations. The British have a kind of narrative that the British Empire is a humanitarian endeavour. It's a kind of liberal um, attempt to spread civilization around the world. But kind of that goes hand in hand with a real sense of British superiority over these places. And that in the 19th century in particular really feeds into the development of a quite explicit racial hierarchy actually, which has white British European, Northern European people at the top. And then actually has this quite gradated hierarchy in the 19th century where you have sort of Mediterranean people and then people of different colours down to the kind of black African being right at the bottom. And what that imperial racial mindset does is, is when people come to Britain and there is this kind of anger over resources, for example, that can boil over into violence. A thing that really, really triggers violence is um, sex, anxiety around sex and anxiety around sex between particularly between men of colour and white women. And this, this becomes a real kind of flashpoint. So that that's the kind of flashpoint in Notting Hill. So a, a woman called Marjorie Morrison and her husband Raymond they are at the centre of this kind of race race right because Raymond is black. And so this kind of real anxiety around racial mixing, around what was called at that point miscegenation, kind of tempers running very high around sex. And that often boils over into violence. Uh, and that's the thing you see again and again. There are obvious movements or events in history that no one would seek to look for positives in. Do you think, just for example, the slave trade? Nazism, fascism. You do find people attempting either to justify the empire, much less so perhaps today, or looking for positives in it and arguing that, oh, it wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. And that the British brought certain things to colonies that they benefited from. What's your response to people who argue that? I think I've kind of got two responses. So I think the first one is that argument in Britain certainly is often premised on the idea that the British Empire was more benign than other European empires, both imperialism and decolonization. So decolonization for Britain, for example, is often compared to France. And there's often this sense that, you know, France in Algeria, France in Vietnam is this sort of incredibly violent process and that Britain was much better than that, much more democratic, kind of handed over power when it needed to. And you, you get that kind of narrative actually in, in the sort of books sometimes that my undergraduates are encountering, that sort of framework. And it's not true, actually, that British decolonization is incredibly violent in particular places in Malaya, in Kenya, in India, you know, 
actually just the premise of that argument is is not really true. Britain is as violent in its empire as the other European powers. In terms of looking for positives, I do find it interesting because I think most historians don't really... There's this sense, I think, sometimes of a balance sheet about historical events, right? You have the kind of balance sheet of positives and negatives, and you can kind of weigh it up, and that's how you decide if something was a good or a bad thing. And you're right, clearly, you know, there are some topics for for which this seems to be beyond the pale. No one is trying to do that, really, for Nazi Germany. No one within a, a kind of mainstream. I don't think historians really want to do that for anything. So I think when we kind of look at empire and people are trying to say, oh, but, you know, it was good in these ways and bad in these ways, it's like, well, but probably, but it's not necessarily the way that we think about these things in the past. I think in my book, you know, there's certainly points where I say, you know, these people had positive experiences or this is a particular moment of joy or of, you know, a funny story from the empire. You know, these kinds of things that happened. But I I don't think there's really a sense that what historians want to do is kind of get to the end of looking at something and then go on balance. This was a, you know, a good thing or a bad thing or that kind of 1066 and all that approach to it. And I think sometimes people are doing that because they because they really want to be able to rehabilitate empire. They want it to be something that British people can be proud about. And it's not that historians want people to feel guilty about the empire. That's, you know, why should you feel guilty about something that your ancestors did? But at the same time, I think it's not necessarily something that we need to try to find the positive in. How do you think that we are coming to terms with empire as a country? How are we coming to terms with our history? How does it penetrate our psyche? We use that word guilt. Mm -hmm. And while individuals shouldn't feel guilty about things that they are not personally responsible for, some might argue that a state, if there is such a thing, should feel responsibility for its own past. Definitely. And there's some interesting, I write towards the end of the book, there's some interesting moments around the anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade. 2007 is the, the bicentenary. And there's some interesting moments where different people or organisations do or don't apologise for this. The city of Liverpool makes an apology for their role in the slave trade. Ken Livingston made an apology as mayor of London on behalf of the city. There's a huge kind of ongoing debate about whether Tony Blair will or will not apologise on behalf of the British uh, state. And it kind of completely overshadows the actual apology he would be making, this kind of will he, won't he. I think... It's it can be interesting when these sorts of things happen and the ceremonial context can be interesting. And it can I mean, like today, like the idea of Windrush Day being a kind of moment for marking the migration of so many people from around the colony to Britain and and their kind of contribution and lives in Britain. But of course, Windrush Day has also been formed in the context of the Windrush scandal. And there is a sense, you know, among the organisers that this is partly about we need to draw attention to the the horrible experiences, the very unjust experiences of many of these people and the kind of so far sort of lack of understanding or lack of recompense by the British government to kind of make to, to make right what has happened in, in the Windrush scandal. And so I think sometimes these apologies need to come with something. They need to be backed up with something, you know, whether that's an apology that involves say, returning some of the things in the British Museum that's been taken from places around the empire, whether it's an apology that's tied together with aid, for example, an apology that's tied together with more work to improve racial equality in Britain today. Um, The apology on itself might be an interesting moment, an interesting speech, but I agree that it's not necessarily doing that much. Identity politics is a hot and often toxic topic at the moment. And I wonder whether, not that there's any reason you should have been, necessarily, 
But I wonder whether you were aware of your own identity as a white British woman writing this book. I definitely was. I think the historical profession over the last few decades has really come to terms with the idea that history is a subjective practice. There was a bit, you know, there was originally this kind of Rankian idea that you wrote V.S. Eigentlichkeitswesen, right, as it actually happened. And that was the point of history. You were trying to find out the facts. We've come to terms with the idea that historians have biases and perspectives and what you choose to look at, what sources you choose to find. And it's not just about choice either, you know, what sources you're able to access, what what kind of documents you can see. I wrote this book during a pandemic. There were that it really shaped my research in 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 particular ways. Um, that all shapes the book that you're writing. And it doesn't mean that history is just opinion or that we're just kind of sitting there writing, you know, I think this and because of who I am. But I do think I was really conscious of of my background in writing this um, and not just my whiteness. Yeah, absolutely. My my Britishness, the fact that I'm writing this from kind of inside the house, as it were, um, writing it as a, a woman, at least trying to get kind of female voices and perspectives into the book but also you know I'm from I grew up in Lincolnshire in the Fens in a in an area which in Brexit for example was a very pro-Brexit region I live now in Newham and I start the book in Newham which is one of the most diverse areas in the country um white British people are in a minority here where I grew up and where I live now are dramatically different in terms of their demographics in terms of you know going from a very rural place to a to a very busy city their kind of relationship to empire is very different. And yet, actually, I think both Lincolnshire and Newham experience, you know, imperial legacies, they both have to grapple with that history. So that my kind of personal journey between those two places and and, and my identity definitely shaped how I was thinking about the book. I take your earlier point, Charlotte, about the risks perhaps attached to emphasising or overemphasising the contribution of a community. But there is an irony, isn't there, that we have as a society benefited from migrant populations from the empire as part of the decolonising process. There is. And it is really interesting, I think, that decolonisation and the fall of the empire maybe sees empire come home to Britain, actually, in a way it hadn't before it is ironic as you say that there is a far bigger population in britain from the ex colonies once those colonies have gone and it almost means that britain deals with empire in two distinct phases you have the empire which was sort of almost over there and the ways that the british think about it and talk about it and there are loads of ways in which empire shapes british british people's lives um the food they eat the books they read and then you have this moment of decolonization and i think the conversation then shifts and it does become the book becomes quite quite focused on migration from the 1960s onwards because that is really the center of, of the conversation at that point once decolonization is underway even the most ardent defendants of the empire can't really stop it once colonies start to go you can't you can't stop them and instead people start thinking about what's next and 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 ideas about migration get really bound up with ideas about britishness when Britain's lost the empire, what what does it mean anymore to be Britain, to be British? Uh, what does it mean to be British on a world stage? You know, what does it mean for British hard and soft power? But also, what does it mean at home to be British without an empire? And migration really um, destabilizes that. I think it really destabilizes that narrative because at least during empire, there had to some extent been a sense among some people in Britain that Britishness and whiteness kind of went hand in hand. 
with all of these kind of different things as well you know Britishness and and Anglican Christianity for example also go hand in hand Britishness and cricket if you want to you know these kind of tropes of cultural identity when you have migration large-scale migration from places where people have come into Britain who aren't white it shifts people's understanding of what it means to be British or it challenges it or sometimes it makes them feel very uncomfortable and so I think you're right that there's there is this kind of it's interesting that that happens in in that moment. Marking, I presume, Windrush Day, Michael Afton, former England cricket captain and Times cricket writer, wrote a piece in today's Times Mm -hmm. about the contribution of English cricketers who had either been born in the Caribbean or who had roots in the Caribbean. As we open our eyes, as our eyes become increasingly open to our own history, so as we are aware of the sins of our past, as well as the things that we can be proud of, we become increasingly aware of just how entrenched our wealth is in empire, and also our landscape, our visual landscape. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Colston much earlier in the interview. Where do you stand on statues and the tearing of them down? So, I... As a his, as a historian, yeah, and a person, a, <laughs> I genuinely, as a historian, so I I had um when Colston, when the Colston statue came down, I wrote I wrote a piece for the Guardian in which I said this this is historiography. Pulling down statues is an engagement with the past, right? It's about thinking about history and and what we choose to record and what we choose to say. And I'm all for people having that kind of role in our historical narrative. There was a lot of anxiety. And in the American South as well, where, where the same narratives going on with kind of Confederate statues, um, and also in South Africa, the origins of the, the Rhodes Must Fall movement where the, with the big statue of Cecil Rhodes, which obviously in Britain became Colston Must Fall. Although there's also a Rhodes Must Fall kind of movement around Oriel in Oxford as well, where there's a statue of Cecil Rhodes. There was a lot of anxiety at the time about rewriting history, that pulling down statues is rewriting history. And this this was always kind of cast as a really bad thing. This is a, you know, it's kind of this awful thing. And and as a historian, I'm all for rewriting history is what historians do, right? We don't write one account of the past and then kind of move on to the next one and tick them all off a master list. We we constantly go back to things that we've written and we 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 shift them and we reshape them based on our new understanding, new sources, new ideas. And I think that if you have a statue like the statue to Colston, which is glorifying a slave trader, um, and if the local community doesn't want that to be part of Bristol, then they should absolutely pull it down. And I think the interesting thing about Colston is that the statue now, I think, is um, is being uh, it's on show in the M Shed in a, in a museum in Bristol, and it's on show with the graffiti and things that it was kind of it was pulled in graffiti before it was pulled down, and it was wrapped in chains. Um, and it's it's on show there. And there's quite a lot of information talking about Colston's role and the African slave trade and, and what Britain did and what Bristol did. And I think for lots of people, it's a now a, it's a far more educational tool than it was when it was just a statue standing that people maybe walked past and didn't even really think about, you know, didn't really know anything about. Actually, sometimes these moments of reappraisal which people always often worry, you know, means that we're not going to be talking about this stuff anymore if we remove the statues. They often actually spark much bigger conversations. You know, a lot, most people in Britain now could probably tell you a little tiny bit about Edward Colston. And I don't think that would have been the case before that statue came down. Maybe people in Bristol could have done before then. But in terms of people's understanding of that history, it's been massively increased by that movement. So I think it's a good thing. I'm interested in the way you went about your research. 
because mm. I wrote a chapter for a book, a very short chapter for a book recently, and I went to the British Library, and I just was overwhelmed. I thought, and this was a, a topic that very little had seemed to be have been written about, and I, and I thought, crikey, if you're doing a big historical tome, how do you know where to begin and end? What's really interesting about this book, I think, is... Um... But there's always the temptation to say this is a brand new history. No one's ever written about this stuff before. And some of it is is new primary sources that I've dug up and I can talk about like how I did that. But it's also interesting, I think, that, you know, historian, academic historians have written about these topics in different ways before. And part of what I was doing with this book is trying to write about it in a way that people who aren't academic historians might be interested in, which means that I was drawing on lots of work by other historians. And, and at the end, I've got a kind of bibliographic essay where I sort of say, you know, here, here are some of the other things you might want to read on this topic. But it is quite overwhelming. The history of the British Empire from the Second World War to today, you could drown in secondary sources. Like there's hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of things. So I try to start with the primary sources. And I, I mentioned I was kind of writing this. I signed my contract for this in February 2020. I literally, I think going kind of, I signed the contract. I got the money for the beginning of the advance. And then we immediately locked down and all the libraries closed and all the archives closed. And I just didn't know what to do. I, I, I didn't know how to write it. So I spent quite a long time reading a lot of uh, newspaper reports because they're all digitized. And so I could do that from my computer. I read a lot of books and novels and things like this about the period and written in the period as well. So I read wonderful memoirs like Beryl Gilroy's Black Teacher that she wrote about her experiences of coming from Guyana and teaching in Britain. Um, I read Donald Hines' Journey to an Illusion, which is his memoir of him and his friends coming to Britain as part of the Windrush generation, because these were books that I could you know, buy and get sent to my house and read them. And then when I started going into the archives, um, the British Library, it was really it was a really fun in some ways research because because it's such a huge topic. Often when you research an academic article, it's like a tiny, tiny topic in a tiny, tiny period and you read everything that's been produced about it. This one, I could just I was just sitting there. I was like a child in a sweet shop and I was just kind of. I think at the time you could, because it was pandemic here, you could call up maybe five different things every day. And I'd just pick five things that I was interested in. And so I'd sit there and I'd read, you know, a leaflet by the British anti-apartheid movement from 1968. And then I'd read a magazine produced for young boys in the Second World War that had some stories about empire in it. And then I'd read, you know, a bit from Labour Black Caucus and an article by the, you know, a pamphlet by the NUT about racism in teaching. And just every day I was reading this like really kind of diverse group of, of topics in this completely unfocused, like in hindsight, probably not very sensible way. But it meant that I think I was able to draw connections between things in a way that if I'd been more methodical in a way, or in, if I if I hadn't had the pandemic and I'd had longer, you know, in a more a, a sort of more relaxed research process in a way, I might not have been able to make the connections between different topics as, as well as I could. And it's interesting, it's a it's a long time period and it's a big topic. And so you end up writing about the stuff that you find most important, but also the stuff you find most interesting as well. So there are chapters where I have like several pages talking about one person's experience at, in one point in one moment, and then it kind of jumps and, and you're talking about five years or something. And, and that was a challenge as a writer, but it was an enjoyable thing to do. Before I ask you my 20th and final question, my 19th question is just a delayed reaction to our exchange about statues. 
Mm-hmm. Because there is, to put the other side, there is a democratic way of having statues removed, isn't there? And a non-criminal way. There is. And in non-criminal is interesting because I, I have a little bit in the book about the increasing criminalization of this. It was not very criminal to remove a statue and now is very criminal. Like there is a there is a big prison sentence now attached to removing a statue if it is one that's judged to have this kind of heritage. And that, of course, that's a fight back by the government to try to sort of put some measures in place to stop people taking these issues into their own hands. And that's interesting in itself, I think. Um, there it, is can't, a it, it, it can't be just targeted at, at, at a statue like Colston, can it? The law, it wouldn't discriminate, would it? The law is uh, really, it says, in considering any applications to remove or alter a historical memorial or monument, whether listed or not, local planning authorities have regard to the importance of their attention in situ. And then the law is... The potential prison sentence for damaging a memorial comes from three months to 10 years. It's now 10 years as a potential thing. It's not just Colston, it's any memorial. So, you know, this includes things like war memorials, for example, um, of course. But it's the context in which it was done. I think it makes it makes it kind of a, very, a law that really, really does curtail that kind of just pulling down statues that you don't agree with. Absolutely. There is a democratic way. And I think it's it would it's good to have big open discussions about this and for people to I'm mean, also to share kind of what people want to do with things afterwards. There's often a sense I, I, I talked about, you know, Corsten in the M shed and how great it was that it had gone into the museum. People often say, why don't we just put the statues in museums? And a lot of museums sort of say, we we don't want them. <laughs> like we can't we can't just have museums full of statues that people don't want to put up anymore. Actually not everything it's weird for a historian to say this, but not everything from the past is worth keeping, right? We don't need to display everything old all of the time. So I think that's important. I think where the democratic thing kind of falls down is, for example, at Oriel in Oxford, where students have been calling for a long time to remove this statue of Cecil Rhodes. And Oriel initially said that they would, and then they kind of backtracked. And and that's not really been democratic because the power is very strongly with one group there, you know, and the kind of, I think, a large number of the student body do want to remove it. But because the college doesn't, then you kind of get this sort of difficulty there. But I agree. I'm not I'm not advocating that people just go out in the middle of the night and tear down every statue they don't like the look of. But as a historian, I wouldn't be unhappy if they did that either. So final question is about the Commonwealth and about how the empire has sort of given way to the Commonwealth or the Commonwealth has emerged from the empire. It's an impossibly broad question, but how do you see the Commonwealth? Commonwealth is so interesting because British people know very little about it. They have a sense of the Commonwealth, right? And I think the only thing British people really know about the Commonwealth is the Commonwealth Games. That's the thing that we have a sense of, right? There's this sporting thing and we play against these countries. And that is probably why people have a sense of what the Commonwealth is or what countries are involved in it. You know, we know that European and um, countries in America is not in the Commonwealth Games. We have a kind of sense of who who's there. It's an interesting organisation because, again, I think there's often a sense in Britain that Britain leads the Commonwealth because there's a sense that empire went straight into Commonwealth and that that's how it works. And this was this was probably made more complicated by the fact that the Queen was the head of the Commonwealth. But just before the Queen died, or a few years before the Queen died, it was kind of pointed out that the Queen was head of the Commonwealth as an individual. It wasn't institutional that the monarchy would be the head. And there was this big conversation around who would take over being head of the commonwealth and there was some discussion that you know perhaps it should be the um you know perhaps it should be a leader from india for example as one of the largest commonwealth countries perhaps it could be a leader from somewhere like australia eventually it was decided it would be the then prince charles when he became king and so charles is now leader of the commonwealth but it wasn't set you know it was in the balance for a while 
And I think people in Britain were a bit surprised about that because there was this sense of empire and Commonwealth being kind of largely contiguous. Actually, for the British government, the Commonwealth has often been a really difficult space to navigate. During apartheid, for example, the British government would kind of turn up to the Commonwealth and just be harangued by all of these countries who were just horrified at apartheid. South Africa had been expelled from the Commonwealth. So South Africa, so Britain ended up sort of being sort of not the formal representative, but sort of standing in for South Africa and just getting the ire of every black African country, every, you know, India, Pakistan, all of the West, West Indian countries, just absolutely furious at apartheid. And kind of Britain would go to these Commonwealth heads of government meetings, the Chogams, and, and know that they were just going to be attacked, essentially, for, for these kind of policies. It wasn't a space, actually, that British leaders looked at and thought, this is, you know, this is power we've got in the bag. This is like a, a, a symbol of our kind of great strength in the world. It was actually a space where British diplomats largely found themselves kind of berated. And I think it's kind of interesting. It was interesting to me the way the Commonwealth loomed in the Brexit discussions, because there was often this sense that, you know, the Commonwealth and particularly this kind of imagined Kamsuk, the Canada, New Zealand, Australia, uh, the UK might be a replacement for Europe in trading, which ignored the kind of economics of closeness that you tend to trade much more, much more dramatically with the people who are, who are close to you, but also kind of was really harking back to a particular moment, which, you know, the Commonwealth wasn't Britain's majority. Britain didn't trade with the Commonwealth more than Europe before Britain entered the EEC, there's no sense that they would go back to doing it now. But it was really kind of rooted, I think, in a sense that the Commonwealth was essentially empire. The empire had been part of Britain when Britain had this kind of greatness. That was something that Britain could re rediscover if it left the empire. So it, it stands in for a lot of things in people's minds, I think, the Commonwealth in quite an interesting way. There's so much more that we could talk about. And of course, there's so many things that we haven't touched on that are in the book. And that's Imperial Island, as I said in my introduction, a history of empire in modern Britain. Really interesting to talk to you, Charlotte. Great to meet you as well. Thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking about it. <laughs>